This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, you're listening to The Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Julia Karkatzel. Well, the news media is constantly evolving and misinformation and disinformation is rife on social media platforms. Conspiracy theories are humorous enough, but when COVID contrarians espouse views on mask use and other restrictions threatening human rights, they pose real health risks to the public. Navigating misinformation and fake news is a challenge for adults, let alone children. But it's children who will confront an increasingly tumultuous digital landscape and it's the next generation of reporters who must be responsible communicators of the truth. Well, someone seeking to make sure that happens is Saffron Howden. Saffron started and edited Australia's only national newspaper for kids, Crinkling News. She has written for the Sydney Morning Herald, The Daily Telegraph and AAP. She was Google News Initiative's first teaching fellow for Australia and New Zealand, and she developed a digital citizenship curriculum for Facebook Asia Pacific. And she's just written a book titled Kid Reporter, The Secret to Breaking News. So, hey, Saffron, thank you so much for your time uh, today. And before we get to the book, can you tell our listeners about Crinkling News? It was Australia's only national newspaper for kids. Uh, Why did you start it? How did that come about? Yeah, sure. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, So Crinkling News was um, a massive labour of love. It it was published um, for a bit over two years. And um, myself and um, Rami Bianchi, uh, a graphic designer, we both worked at the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, And when we left, we realised that there was um, a big gap in the market um, in Australia that children weren't really being serviced um, in terms of news production. Um, So we've obviously got a fairly small and very competitive news market in Australia, um, but there really isn't um, a lot around for children. And that was even more the case sort of five years ago. Um, So um, we decided to do something about this and and we launched a national newspaper for young people. Um, It was aimed 
looked at uh, kids sort of seven to 14, but you know, could go either side of that as well. And the idea behind it was to bring a very professional, high quality news service to, um, to kids and young people in the form of a printed weekly newspaper um, that would provide them with all the news that adults and grown-ups were, were reading across Australia, but um, was was produced and written in an age-appropriate way. So the language used was age-appropriate. The references in the articles was were age-appropriate. Um, and also greater sensitivity taken around, obviously, stories that um, might, you know, worry or scare young readers um, and making sure that they were... Um, given a space, I guess, to ask questions and to process um, the current affairs that were going on around them. That sounds awesome. And, uh, and the first of its kind. So did children also write articles? Uh, who, who were the main writers? So all of our, our news articles were written by professional journalists. We had a fantastic pool of um, probably around 50 in the end freelance journalists and photographers and videographers and cartoonists around the country. Um, and they were, they were all professional writers and journalists. So we were very, very keen to make sure that the, the news we produced was original and high quality. Um, we weren't sort of just ripping off, um, you know, other news organisation stories. Um, so, but we also um, put a lot of effort into ensuring that our audience, our readers were involved in the newspaper and also giving young people the opportunity to be involved in journalism. So we had um, each week in the paper, we had a place for young people to submit book reviews and movie reviews, um, game reviews, entertainment reviews, exhibition reviews, that kind of thing. So that those were all written by, by our readers, um, by young people. And then we also had an opinion page that was written again by, by young people. Uh, and very clearly marked as such. Um, and then we eventually started running as well junior reporter programs and junior editor programs to really um, let our readers get a sense of, you know, behind the scenes of a, of a newsroom and, you know, the production side of a newspaper as well. Um, so that, um, that meant that we sort of helped young people to, you know, conduct interviews and maybe even occasionally go and cover events um, and we nurtured them to do that and then and mentored them. And then um, we also had junior editor programs where we had a sort of, you know, um, a over a period of a few months, we had a different junior editor every couple of weeks who would have a say in, you know, what we covered that week and how the paper was put together and what would go on the front page and all of that kind of thing. Awesome. Okay. So a lot going on there. Um, so what did you notice in particular about the children's perspectives on news and, and when they when they um when you conducted those programs and they wrote their own articles or or looked at the world um did you learn any anything from them absolutely i mean it was definitely one of the my favorite bits about um founding and then and then editing crinkling news was the um relationship we built with our readers um and the interactions we had with them um, I think the wonderful thing about um, about kids generally um, is that they they don't bring any sort of they they bring much fewer preconceived notions to to new information. Um, so um, they tend to sort of you know see what is put before them 
um, in a very, you know, a much more straightforward way, which is really refreshing. Um, and, and I guess, you know, uh, you know, some people might call that, you know, innocence, um, which is which is really nice, um, but de definitely a less jaded audience than the audience I was used to um, as a journalist over sort of some 15 or 16 years before I started Crinkling News. Um, so the other thing that was really um, amazing about young people and really inspired me was that they really, really wanted to be a part of, you know, the national conversation. So I think um, because there's a plethora of, you know, uh, news out there for adults, I think we forget that young people, um, people under 18, kids, teenagers, um, they're just a, as much a part of the world as the rest of us. Um, and they have opinions um, and they, they want to sort of be involved like the rest of us, but they get much less of a say. Um, so it was really amazing to be able to give them an outlet um, for them to sort of go, well, my opinion on this particular issue this week, it matters. And an audience of my peers is going to read about that in the opinion pages of Crinkling News this week. Um, and I can help be a part of that discussion and maybe spark further discussion. Um, so that was really, really rewarding as well. That's awesome. And we'll touch on how uh, children are, you know, reflected in the news a bit later on. Um, but yeah, so Crinkling News and all those programs you ran, I guess, inspired you to write your book, um, Kid Reporter, The Secret to Breaking News. Um, so was that the main inspiration? And, and Dana Quinn is, is your co-author as well? That's right. Yeah. So Kid Reporter um, is um, was definitely inspired by Crinkling News. And Dana and I um, sort of came up with the concept well over a year ago now um, after Crinkling News had ceased publishing. Dana worked with um, worked on Crinkling News as a senior um, writer. So we'd worked together for some years already. And she had a background like me and a long background in journalism and in fact, um, in particular in kids news. So she'd worked um, back in the day for Behind the News, um, the, the children's news program on the ABC, which has been around for you know half a century. Um, and so we sort of put our collective sort of more than 30 years experience in journalism together to create this book, which essentially explains um, how journalism works um, to children and, and teenagers um, and encourages them to sort of uh, really think about how stories are put together, you know, the, the, the basics, the who, what, when, where, why, how, um, you know, as well as, you know, describing what's a lead, how do you um, verify information, how do you interview people, um, how, do you, how do you fact check things, um, how do you make sure that the, the information um, that you're, you know, that you're producing is, um, is correct and, and accurate and, and isn't, you know, too influenced by your, your own perspective on the world, this kind of thing. Um, and of course, it's a bit of a how-to guide for young people to start their own news outlets as well. So whether that's sort of you know, a school newspaper or a newspaper out of your, you know, your, your home that you distribute to your, your street or a, a podcast at school or even a, a TV-style news program. 
Yeah, and as a journalist, I definitely uh, refreshed my memory on a lot of those uh, basics. So thank you for that. Um, and you, yeah, so you cover the basics, but then you kind of get to the real hairy stuff like fake news, digital literacy, and you, you've included a disturbing uh, statistic in there, a 2017 survey finding that one third of Australian children aged between eight and 16 said they couldn't tell the difference between fake news and real news. So that's one third of children. Um, Why does that concern you? Why did you include that? Well, I think a a really key part of what happened when we were producing Crinkling News week in, week out, um, is that um, that the the realisation that media literacy in Australia was at at really low levels um, and and was such a low priority um, became more and more obvious as we went along. And that's another inspiration, I guess, behind the book, another reason why we we wrote it. Um, A huge part of media literacy and and increasing, you know, um, media literacy levels is to help people to create their own media. So the idea is that, you know, if if you learn how to write a story, interview, fact check it, edit it, um, you know, um, you know, verify information through multiple sources, you're much more likely to cast a critical eye over other information when you read it, when it's not produced by you. So a big part of, of, of increasing media literacy levels is, is doing it yourself. Um, and of course, this whole book is about that. It teaches kids how, how to do it themselves. Um, how to do journalism themselves. Um, and we thought we couldn't write a book like this, um, particularly in this day and age, without touching on um, all of those critical thinking skills that um, are needed just to exist in the world um, as a young person, but as an adult too, um, when you're bombarded with information every day. Um, and, um, and that, of course, is, is media literacy. It's a, how to navigate that, that world of information that you get through social media on your laptops, on your, you know, your tablets, your phones, your TVs, um, and, um, you know, through for advertisements and news organisations and friends and family and, um, you know, it comes at us thick and fast. Um, and a lot of of the skills that journalists use every single day to do their job um, are actually really transferable um, to the the wider world um, in the sense of of encouraging critical thinking when you um, are are confronted with information. Um, So it it comes naturally to journalists to um, be given a bit of information and to view it with scepticism before you do anything with it to go okay hang on where's this coming from who produced this information why did they produce it is anyone else can anyone else verify this information those skills are incredibly useful to then be able to spot things like fake news for want of a better term misinformation and disinformation um and um, and to be able to make a decision about what you do with that information once you're um, exposed to it. Um, so those those skills, I think, are essential journalism skills, but they're also essential life skills, and we try to get that across in the book. Sure, and, and the prevalence of fake news and misinformation is rife on social media. Uh, do you predict this will get worse before it gets better? Look, it's a really interesting space at the moment. Um, I think there's a huge awareness that it's a problem, um, that misinformation and disinformation are a problem. Um, 
by the by the you know the major sort of tech giants and and social media platforms themselves um by certainly you know the researchers the journalists the media out there um i think you know among um you know depends on the 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 politician as to whether they're prepared to admit how how serious the problem is but i think it's definitely um you know, we're, we're streaks ahead of where we were five years ago with understanding this is a problem and this is why we're starting to see the, the tech giants and the, the social media platforms start to take some action. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, this was probably, although we could never have seen it coming, this kind of thing was, was inevitable with the advent of the internet, to be honest. Um, and I think what we see almost in real time at the moment is that as soon as you stamp down, you know, you, you stamp down on, on disinformation, misinformation in one arena online, it pops up somewhere else. Um, and so I guess that's what governments are now grappling with around the globe as to, you know, rather than targeting specific platforms, how do you create, you know, regulations and legislation to ensure that no matter what crops up, um, that this is being, um, this is being managed um, and that publishers of any information are taking responsibility for that. I think, though, that you can the the other pronged approach to this that that must be taken is to increase media literacy um, education um, both among school aged people like our book is aimed at but also among adults yeah so I guess those kind of lessons aren't really taught at school uh, as they currently stand um, how would you incorporate those kind of classes into the education system or how how would you see that playing out yeah, look, there, there is mention of media literacy um, in, in the, the national curriculum at the moment, and um, it, it sort of falls more under the digital literacy um, side of things. There's a big focus on, for instance, you know, privacy and safety online, much less on this sort of critical thinking approach to information and the and the consequences of not taking that, that approach. And we can see now, you know, around you know, some of the disinformation being circulated about coronavirus around the globe, that it has very real life um consequences to to not for for people not to have an understanding of that that is disinformation and that you should not take that as health advice um and you know while in australia it's um you know we've been incredibly lucky here um and we've got a really great health system and most people have you know taken the advice um of of health authorities we're definitely seeing you know the, the consequences of it overseas where people take very seriously some of this dis disinformation that's been circulated. Um, so I think, you know, this is why it's so important that as a life skill, it is, it is brought into the school environment. Um, and I think it's, you know, at least that's one place where um, you've got a ready audience um, of young minds soaking up information and you can um, help them to understand, um, you know, to tell the difference between, you know, false and, and accurate information, to tell the difference between opinion and fact, um, you know, to pick up bias, to understand their own perspective. These are all the things that matter in order to increase media literacy. Um, and it should definitely be a much bigger priority um, in the, the national curriculum. And it, at the moment, it varies from basically school to school, um, state to state as to how much uh, emphasis is put on that. 
Great. And I, I really liked uh, your example of critical thinking. You, you wrote about um, an organization called Dogs Rule Association uh, who claimed that tens of thousands of Australian children are allergic to cats. And you asked uh, your audience to question why Dog uh, Dogs Rule Association would say that, uh, which was great. I really enjoyed that. Um, do, you, do you have any other examples off the top of your head you can think of uh, that you kind of you wanted to convey in the book? like that yeah look I think um what we try to do there's very practical examples in the book so that um you know our readers and and their parents and teachers um can um and anyone who's interested really can can give sort of real life application to some of the concepts that we go through so one of the things we do in the book is we you know we show people a a picture of a puppy and we get them to imagine um, all the different ways that image of that very cute puppy could be used and how, depending on how that image was used, the different meanings that it could convey. So, you know, if it's, um, if it's a, a, an image used by an animal shelter, um, then it conveys one message. If it's an image posted by your friend on social media because they just got a new new puppy, that's a different message again. Um, if it's being a pet shop, then it's to sell a, a product, which is the puppy, and to make money and how the meaning can change. And I guess, uh, you know, a big, big part of that section um, of the book is encouraging that kind of thinking, uh, which I think is really important. And we're really lucky that we could draw on the knowledge of not only our own expertise as journalists, but um, but also the knowledge of, of some um, experts in the field. So, you know, um, people who work for ABC, RMIT, Fact Check, um, and going through, you know, with them, the different steps they go through to professionally fact check article and then making that, you know, sort of uh, um, explaining that in a way that our audience, our readers can can appreciate. Um, and then speaking, you know, for things like how to interview people, we we spoke to Avani Dias, the, the host of Triple J Hack, um, who gave us her interview tips. Um, we spoke to professional news photographers for tips on, you know, uh, how to take the, a great news photo. So we're really lucky that we're able to draw on a whole lot of people's expertise and then bring them all together in one book. Um, and as well as that, to, to draw on the expertise of kids themselves, there are a lot of kids out there who've already tried their hand at uh, at creating um, a news outlet in their school or at home, and we're able to showcase them through through case studies as well in the book to hopefully also inspire other people to do the same thing and and learn from the challenges that they overcame. Yeah, and I guess I guess a big problem is not having enough time to fact check if you're just kind of skimming through the news in the morning. And you mentioned the RMIT and ABC fact check service before. Do you see those kinds of services becoming more prominent in in everyday news media? Well, I think we have we have seen an expansion of fact checking services across the globe um, uh, in in the last sort of you know, five to 10 years, they've now sort of fairly well established, particularly ones like ABC, RMIT, Fact Check, there's um, AAP has quite an established one now in Australia, AFP has one here, which is also available. Um, so um, I think those are on the increase and people see the value in them. I think, um, you know, there's more work being done and there's, there is a lot of work yet to do, but there's a lot of 
uh, trial and error happening at the moment by the publishers of information themselves. So th those sort of processes happen anyway within a news organisation, as we as we both know. Um, you know, as a journalist, you go through all those processes of you know of of getting a bit of information, verifying whether it's true. Um, you know. To, to the best of your ability, um, marrying it with other information, putting it in context, that, that's all part of news. That doesn't happen naturally in a platform like Facebook or Twitter. Um, that's just people putting stuff out there. Um, and so now we see things like, you know, Twitter's um, experimenting with things like Birdwatch, which is basically crowdsourcing, um, fact-checking. Um, you've got Facebook um, as you mentioned to me earlier, Facebook, um, uh, you know, stamping out uh, disinformation around vaccines um, to do with COVID. Um, so we're seeing different um, approaches to this. And I don't think we've, we've nailed the, the answer yet. Um, and I don't think, I, I don't know that we will ever get the perfect solution. And that's why I always come back to media literacy because these, the, the world of sort of, you know, um, you know, we see new uh, social media platforms um, and ways of communicating. There are new versions of that every single week, you know, um, and then they, you know, they, they take off for a year or two, they die out or they have longevity like Facebook, you know, or they go the way of MySpace, whatever it might be. Um, and I think what media, the media literacy approach means that you educate people to a level that it doesn't matter what you throw at them, um, they will always approach information critically, regardless of the format it's put in and who's doing it um, and how. Um, that's why I think it, I, I, I don't think, you know, we should stop doing all of these other measures um, to counter disinformation and misinformation. Um, but I think media literacy has to be a, a core of any education system. And, and we probably need to do a fair bit of work to get it out to the adult population as well at the moment, um, given the dangers of misinformation and disinformation. So you're a mother yourself, and we spoke about the education system. Um, what do you think the parent's role is in educating their child before, you know, buying them their first phone or opening up their first social media account? Um, what's their role in all of this? I think it's, that's a really, really tough question. Um, I think, you know, um, you know, parenting is very subjective um, and it really depends on your household. I guess all I can do um, is talk as a parent what, what I, I do. Um, and I've been very conscious as, you know, a journalist, um, much more so than, than other people of the media and all the messages that come through the media and what, you know, my child is exposed to. And so I've been teaching her the principles behind media literacy since she was old enough to talk um, and probably earlier, just as a matter of course. So, for instance, um, very early on introduced to her, um, you know, what you're seeing at the moment um, is or, or what we're looking at, that is an advertisement and that's different. And I've explained to her, you know, someone pays for that so that people look at it so that you buy that product or service. Um, I don't explain it quite like that, obviously. But um, so I think you are never too young to be exposed to um, to the, the, the sort of principles and concepts behind media literacy. Um, and that is something that I actively do as a parent. And to me, it means that, you know, by the time 
my child becomes a teenager and, and perhaps starts accessing these platforms, you know, perhaps even without my knowledge or say so, or it's going to happen at some point. Um, hopefully I've armed her with the tools um, and the, the critical thinking skills that mean that no matter what, you know, is the, the sort of social media platform of the moment, um, she, she knows to approach it with caution. She knows to approach information with caution um, and to consider you know, what someone's trying to tell her, why they're trying to tell her that, what she's going to do with that information, um, whether it, you know, whether it is true or whether it can be, you know, uh, backed up with information elsewhere um, and to take a very sort of um, measured approach, I guess, to, to information from, from sources out there that you're not familiar with. Um, great. And I guess on the other hand, uh, a lot of kids are more tech savvy than their parents. Uh, and do you think that there's room for adults to learn digital literacy? You know, maybe some adult journalists should pick up Kid Reporter. Obviously, yes, <laughs> definitely. And in fact, um, I've, I've heard that comment before, I think, um, uh, you know, as, as you said, we've got Peter Grester, who's a um, very well-known journalist um, had a had a look at Kid Reporter before we published it, um, and he said that he learned a thing or two from it as well. Um, I I think that this book hopefully does go beyond its core, you know, readership, which is which is young people, probably aged, you know, sort of seven and up. Um, I think it's I know you know um, I've had a few friends read it. Um, and they've got a lot out of it, particularly around the misinformation and disinformation, and particularly those um, parents with children. Um, but I do think that um, I do think that we, in this this moment in time, um, because um, as at the at the general adult population um, has really been, you know, exposed to. The, the new world of sort of information bombardment um, relatively recently in terms of human history. It's only really been the last sort of 20, 30 years. Um, and that means that it is terribly new to a lot of people. Um, and I think um, if we can find ways to help um, the adult population um, improve their media literacy skills as well, that would be wonderful. It's a lot of some, we got a fair bit of feedback to that effect when we were publishing Crinkling News from, you know, parents and aunts and uncles and grandparents and teachers who, because um, we did a lot of media literacy work while we were publishing the paper, um, who were like, oh, this is fantastic for the kids to learn, but I want to know this too. Uh, how, how do we access this information? Fantastic. Um, and I guess turning back to uh, Facebook and Twitter and all the platforms and what they're doing, uh, you mentioned Birdwatch before, which is in its pilot kind of infancy stage. Um, so it's allow allowing users to identify misinformation by labelling tweets as misleading or false themselves. So it's kind of like a crowdsourced uh, version of fact-checking. Uh, what do you what do you make of it? They said that um, it's kind of on top of their existing labelling process, which is quite time intensive, uh, which is why they're kind of crowdsourcing now as well. Uh, do you think that'll actually help or do anything? I think it's it's an important step because I think that um, a lot of what's happening at the moment from from the platforms and and the tech companies is is an acknowledgement that they do have to do something in this space. Um, that they are publishers of information and that they are responsible for that. And I think all of um, the moves in that direction are really positive, um, no matter what it is. I, I probably reserve judgment on how it will go. Um, I mean, I think, 
it's um, sort of outsourcing your fact checking has its, um, I'm sure it's very cost effective, but it has its um, uh, risks. Um, and just like, you know, Wikipedia, <laughs> you know, if you, if you outsource all your, your, the information gathering, that mistakes will be made. Um, and it does allow, of course, you know, it leaves open the possibility for, um, for someone to misuse that kind of tool as well if you get enough bots and, and people involved, you know. So um, I, I reserve judgment, but I, overall I think any, any move in this direction by any of the platforms is important because it's an acknowledgement that um, you, you can't just um, publish you know, allow people to publish anything and take no responsibility for that. Um, and I think that, that's a step in the right direction. Yeah, I guess with Facebook banning misinformation around uh, vaccines, you know, that comes after years and years of criticism and people um, demanding some kind of change. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's a positive step uh, in the right direction. Um, so I was browsing, looking through your Twitter, uh, and you retweeted a disturbing chart uh, mapping Liberal MP Craig Kelly's contrarian COVID opinions on social media uh, versus public engagement with the Australian government, uh, Department of Health uh, website and messaging. The chart was mapping out the two kind of um, engagement data sets, uh, and it revealed a much higher engagement with uh, Craig Kelly. How does the public go about disengaging with people like that who pose, you know, a real health risk to the public? Yeah, look, I, and I'm, I'm going to sound like a broken record, um, but I think, um, again, that the principles of media literacy apply here. Um, one of those is an acknowledgement that, you know, the, the social media beast operates on emotions. Um, you're, you're having, a, you know, the, the most viral, uh, you know, most engaged with posts are ones that prompt an emotional response in people. And that might be anger, it might be sadness, it might be, you know, joy, um, less so joy, I think. <laughs> um, it might be fear, um, all of those things increase engagement. And I think the number one thing we all have to do, and, and this, I guess, includes journalists, I've seen plenty of, you know, my, I've been guilty of this as well, of having emotional response to information. Um, and before, you know, checking that and doing the, the usual checks and balances that you do as a journalist, you know, having an emotional response and then sharing that emotional response. Um, and I think we all need to take a, a deep breath um, when, we, when we're confronted with information on social media, which is so eminently shareable so quickly, um, and say, what response am I having? Why am I having that response? And and what what should I actually do with that information? Um, and um, and obviously, you know, you know, sort of very bland, but you know, correct government health information is not going to elicit an emotional response versus someone who's saying, "Oh my gosh, you know, this could save you, or this could kill you, or you know, that kind of thing." Um, so I think I think you know taking a deep breath and thinking about uh, what you're reading or viewing, um, who's made it, why they're sharing it, um, and, uh, and what, what they um, want people to do with that. What, you, know, I, I, you know, check yourself. Like, are you being manipulated here? To, to what end uh, is, this, is this, you know, information being shared? Um, and then then make a decision about what you do with it, whether you share it, engage with it, click on it, um, like it, love it, cry about it.
Yeah, I mean, we have plenty of that online. And you include an infographic in your book, which uh, suggests that many young children find the news uh, distressing or makes them feel, you know, that spectrum of emotions you mentioned, feeling upset, afraid or angry. Can you see a lot of the youth kind of veering away from news media um, or consuming more clickbaity videos um, on TikTok or other platforms? I think there'll always be a demand for high quality journalism. Um, I think one of the things that um, that gets very blurry is that um, often the the and that people forget is that that often the reason why people are talking about something on social media, whether it's TikTok or you know whatever it is, Snapchat, Instagram, whatever it might be, is because it's originated from a story. <laughs> that was broken by a journalist in a um, in a professional me- news media outlet, um, and and that remains um, the case. I think there will in a democracy, like not only will there always be a demand for for high quality you know quality journalism, um, but it's also a necessary part of democracy. So um, while we have seen that demand decrease. Um, we we must nurture it to ensure that professional journalism uh, remains as a really core part of our society um, because it is essential to democracy, democracy functioning properly and, and fairly and, and in all of our interests to have journalism thrive. Um, so, I, I mean, obviously the way people get information is, is changing and that's not just young people, that's people everywhere. Um, where they get it, how they get it, um, the way it's presented to them. Um, there's huge experimentation happening with that at the moment. Um, and, um, and with the rise of each new sort of social media platform, we see a, you know, a new wave of things being done differently. Um, and some of it's fantastic. Like, I don't think, you know, we should, we should, um, because it isn't, you know, that the information isn't being delivered in a very traditional, you know, written news story in a newspaper, we should dismiss it. Um, I think what's more important is that people have an understanding of what information they can use to make decisions about their life and, and how they vote and what they buy and how they look after their family and the policies, the government policies that they agree or disagree with that they think will help us. And, and what information they choose to share with their friends and have fun with and make them laugh and cry. Um, all of it is fine. Um, you know, I, I'm not, you know, we should never sort of, you know, push away the, the other types of information, the entertainment, the advertisements, you know, the, the opinion pieces, the, you know, all of that matters. Um, but the key thing is, is approaching each of those different types of information with, with um, a different mindset. Um, and, and this is where I place a lot of faith in, in professional news because, um, you know, once you know that, that something, all that, that rigour has gone into um, a bit of information that's been put into context, then you can go, okay, you know, they've legitimately interviewed this person, this has been fact-checked, whereas this TikTok video is awesome and hilarious and I love it and it made me laugh and um, I'm going to share it with my friends, but I'm not going to use it to make a life decision. 
Yeah, I like that. Um, and I guess just a last question. Uh, traditional news isn't really, you know, perfect either. A lot of young children, uh, young Australians believe that news media organisations uh, neglect them and are biased. So I guess maybe in a summarising statement, uh, what do you hope Kid Reporter will instil in future generations of journalists or rather, you know, what do you hope they bring to the table or to news organisations? So I think a, a few things that I would like to see um, come out of Kid Reporter and even be a bit of a legacy of Crinkling News. Um, one is that young people feel empowered, um, that they feel a part of this process, um, that they feel as though, um, you know, just because they're not, you know, haven't turned a magic age of 18 or whatever it might be, um, that um, they're not sort of, they don't have a, a a legitimate voice in the world. Um, I think that's one thing. The other is that to to better understand how the media as a whole works and where journalism fits within that. Um, and, and hopefully, I guess, to better understand that, you know, whether you agree with a particular news out, outlet's, you know, political slant or not, that there are some basics to professional journalism which don't change. Um, so, you know, when, you know, even if the headline seems, you know, off in one particular direction or the, you know, the newspaper or news outlet takes a particular line, you can pretty much always guarantee that, you know, in a, in a professional news outlet that at least, you know, the, the, the quotes are not made up. Someone's verified the information. Someone actually said something. Um, and I think that's an important distinction to make with, with, you know, stuff that someone said on Twitter or, or posted on Facebook. Um, so I hope that that distinction is is clearer to the next generation because um, I'd like, I, I think it's important that we help restore um, some trust in journalism because, as I said before, I think it's a very important part of our democratic process. Um, and, and I guess, obviously, also increasing media literacy levels generally um, and encouraging that that that. Um, critical thinking approach to information generally, um, I think is really important. Um, and I, I hope too that, you know, um, journalists um, see this and, um, and see that younger and, and media organisations generally and the, you know, the executives see it and, and as we've seen out of Crinkling News, realise that, that young people are a legitimate audience for news as well. Um, in this day and age. Um, and I think since Crinkling News, we've seen the, um, you know, we sort of set the tone for a number of new news outlets, some large, some small. Um, and that that's fantastic. I think it's really great that that market is now opening up in Australia for journalism and that we're seeing um, that audience being taken seriously because in the end that will also, um, it'll help journalism, it'll help our democracy because we'll have more informed citizens. Um, and, and we'll have citizens empowered to um, be a part of our society and to have a say in it, which um, I think can only be good for all of us. Fantastic, Saffron. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time today on the show and big uh, congrats on the book. It is a real good read and um, really important in this day and age. So thank you for bringing that to us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure chatting. That's it from us on Fourth Estate. A big thanks to my guest, Saffron Howden. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast so you'll never miss an episode. If you're already a subscriber, please leave us a review on your podcast app or on Facebook. It helps us know what you like and it helps other people find the show. 
You can stay in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. My name's Julia Carcatzel. You can catch us next week. <laughs>